there is a quote in that, um, in that video that we just watched where the narrator stated that in the church, confusion replaces clarity and conviction, which is something that I hate when that happens, when we confuse people. Um, I felt like for me, for the first 22 years of my life, so I'm 43 now, the first half of my life, I was mostly confused when it came to the Bible, uh, church, and God. I grew up uh, on Sunday mornings going to this little traditional church uh, where we sung hymns with an organ, which I know many of you, that was instrumental in your upbringing of your faith. But for me, I didn't understand anything of it, and I just felt like it was kind of irrelevant um, matter of fact, that, that little traditional church, the most memorable time for me was during Christmas Eve when we had the candles and I lit my bulletin on fire and the bulletin got consumed in flames and my mom had to quickly get it out and then heard, heard about that when I got home. Um, but I, I'll never forget in middle school sitting there in my pew and looking at the preacher. And I loved that. He's a, he was a great man. I love this guy. But I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. I'm going to track with them. And then 10 minutes later, I'd be thinking about something else, football or whatever. I just was always confused when it came to why we did certain things in church, and, and the Bible kind of confused me. Now, my main spiritual upbringing was this church that I went to on Sunday night. It was a charismatic church. Um, if you don't know what charismatic is, it's kind of people, you know, crazy people raise their hands in church and stuff like that. And they'll do like uh, speaking in tongues, which to me as a kid sounded a little bit like gibberish. I was like, what on earth is he saying? And, and people would come up to the microphone. And they'd say, you know, the Lord says this. And, and um, it, it, was, it was a good upbringing for me. I had a great church growing up, parents who loved God. But I was mostly confused about why we did things a certain way in the church. Then I went to college, and I went to a Christian college, and I was introduced to this, this doctrinal or this argument known as Calvinism versus Arminianism. And that sent me on a bit of a theological tailspin, uh, and it just confused the heck out of me for quite a while. Graduated from college and lived in Atlanta, Georgia for a bit, and on Tuesday nights, I began going to this, this small little church called North Point Community Church. It was, it was a little church of about 2,000 people at the time, and the, the guy who was the main teacher was a man named Andy Stanley, and I, I would listen to him teach, and for the first time, I was like, wow, I can actually understand the Bible. Like, I, it makes sense to me now, and I know how to apply it to my life. And so moved out of Atlanta, moved back to Pittsburgh area, became a youth pastor, went to seminary, came here. And uh, I'll just be real with you for a moment. Three, about three years ago, uh, with, with one of my buddies, we decided to read through the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, and I just got to be real. When I was reading parts of the Old Testament, man, it was, I was struggling with it. I was struggling with why is there so much blood and the sacrifices and all the details surrounding the, the, the way you're supposed to worship God. And, um, and, and, but the part that really kind of messed with me was when God told people in the book of Joshua to go um, into the promised land and take over people's lands and wipe everybody out. And I, that really troubled me. Again, this was three years ago. So I started reading some books and some articles to try to decrease my confusion. And I, I'll be honest to say that a lot of my confusion has in fact decreased, but I'm, I'm still kind of wrestling with that. And I know we're all in process and we're all still trying to figure out, figure out what the Bible means 
in theology. So in the church, confusion replaces clarity and conviction, and we really don't want that. We want things to make sense. So a verse that has always meant a lot to me, I love this verse, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And really, one of the reasons I got into ministry, I guess, is because I grew up in churches that didn't make any sense to me, and I couldn't understand the Bible. And I've always made it like my passion to say, if you can understand the text, the Word of God, and I can give you the the surrounding culture and the, the different elements, and you can make sense of it, I think it can actually change your life. And so as a staff, we always talk about how do we make things less confusing? When you park your car in the parking lot, how do we make it less confusing? Children's church check-in, and certainly when you come in here and you get the music and the message, we just want it to not be confusing because we think that the Word of God actually can change your life. We just need to get rid of the confusion. Now, here's the interesting thing about this verse, okay? The very next verse, when Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, says this. Now, put on your seatbelts for a second. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. Now, if you're watching online, you need to know this. It is dead silent in the room right now. Right? That's right. And if you're a lady and you haven't been in church for a while, you're like, what on earth does that mean? Now, I came across a stat this past week. There's a group called the Barna Group. They interviewed different people to try to figure out the religious landscape in America. And here's what he discovered, that 27% of millennial non-Christians believe the Bible is a dangerous book of religious dogma used for centuries to oppress people. Now, we would all agree, this isn't even a controversy, we would all agree that people have used the scriptures to oppress people. That is absolutely true. Matter of fact, you can, you can pretty much find a verse to back up anything you want to believe. Any political party you want to align yourself with, any philosophical argument, um, anything that you want to draw a line in the sand, you can find a verse to support what you want to believe. So, It is true that people have used scriptures to oppress people, but what I would take issue with is that the Bible is dangerous if you use verses, the first first service filled in the blank for me, if you use verses out of context, right? Because isn't this true? Isn't this true? That context clarifies confusion. Context clarifies confusion. I'll give you a perfect example. It's the first service I was talking to my friend Rick. I love this guy, and he's in my small group, you know, and we're talking, and I'm like, hey, you're going to be a small group tonight, right? And he's like, well, 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 no, I can't, and then we talked a little bit more, and um, after our conversation, I said to him, all right, I said, well, have a good night in jail tonight. Now, if you came into that conversation, and that's all you heard, you'd be like, whoa, what is going on? Like, how do you end up in jail? But, it, but if I gave you the context and said, well, actually, no, Rick is has a, a jail ministry, and he teaches a Bible study in the jail, then you go, oh, that makes sense, right? So anything out of context, again, we could, we could get all confused. So context clarifies confusion. Um, and that verse in 1 Corinthians, again, if you just kind of pull it out of context, it's like, well, all the ladies, see you later, you got to go home. Or like, Bethany, you can sing, but you can't talk up here. So, you know, we, we could, again, we could use anything to support a point that, but context really does bring clarity. In that passage in 1 Corinthians, um, the reason that we 
uh, can understand that is because of the context. There were things happening in the church at Corinth, some really, really strange things that Paul was specifically addressing. And if I were to give you the context of that, you would say, oh, well, that makes sense. Right? So here's the main point that I want to hover on for the rest of our time together, and it's this, that God entered our context to make himself known. It's as if God was up there in heaven saying, okay, I understand that you're a little bit confused about who I am. I understand you're down there saying, I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't get this and I don't get that. And so I am going to come down into your context so that I can become known so that you can understand me. So I came up with a timeline here. If you look at the nation of Israel, right, for many, many years, they had the word of God. Israel, the nation, was led by prophets, priests, and kings, and they heard from God through prophets. Prophets were the mouthpiece of God, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and all these guys would say, thus saith the Lord, and that's, that's specifically how they heard from God. And then you get to Malachi 4, 6, which is the last verse in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. And for 430 years, there is silence. 430 years, there are no prophets, there's no word of God, and you have to believe that the nation of Israel is quoting Psalm 6, probably. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? I mean, we all wrestle with our thoughts sometimes, and the more you wrestle with your thoughts, sometimes the more confused you get. How long will my enemy triumph over me? 430 years, the nation of Israel was mostly theologically confused. Right. So you have the Persians, they come in and they, they kind of rule the day of the Persian Empire. And then you have Alexander the Great who marches into this part of the world and Greekifies or Hellenizes this part of the world. Then you have this brief moment of independence where the Maccabees rise up and they kick the Greeks out of there. And it's good for a little bit, but then 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey comes in and he declares that Rome is here. We are large and we are in charge and we are taking over. And the Israelites in the meantime are like, what? Is going on. I am so, so confused. And so in the midst of that confusion, in the midst of who is God, Jesus shows up. Jesus comes to make God known. Jesus comes to clear up the confusion. And I think if, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, I'm new in the faith, where do I even start discovering who God is? I would tell you to probably turn to the book of John because there are two guys who were probably the best friends of Jesus, two guys who spent the most time with Jesus, Peter and John. But John declared himself like the, the beloved apostle, right? I mean, it just, he, he had so much confidence in the fact that Jesus loved him. He said, I'm, I'm the beloved apostle. Je Jesus likes me better than all y'all. I'm, I'm loved by, I, it wasn't cocky like that, but that's, that's funny in, in a funny way how he referred to himself. Now, John had seen a lot of things. Right? He had seen a whole bunch of things. He had seen the crucifixion of Christ. He was the only of all the disciples who actually saw Jesus get crucified. Um, years later, right around 66, we had Nero, the Caesar, who unleashed this massive persecution against the Christians. Thousands of Christians were lit on fire in Nero's gardens, just you know, 
killing Christians. And then years later, 70 AD, the worst moment in Israelite history, most scholars would agree, is when the temple was destroyed, lit on fire. Uh, thousands and thousands of Jews were flooded the slave markets, and a million Jews were killed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. And John witnessed, and John saw all of this. And so John, he's an old man. Most scholars believe that he writes his gospel about 85 to 90 AD, right? About 60 years or so after the resurrection of Christ. He had seen a lot of stuff. He had experienced a lot of pain. He had also seen the church rise up from this small group of 120 followers to now thousands of Jesus followers. And he decides to put pen to paper to describe the story of Jesus the biography of Jesus. So this is kind of like the, the new genesis, the new beginning, if you will, that John describes in John chapter one, beginning with verse one. Here's how John describes it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, this word, word, is the word logos, and he is referring to Jesus as the word. So you could read this, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He's making this clear statement that, that Jesus has always existed. There wasn't a moment in time when Jesus was created. He's always been there. He refines his point or goes a little bit deeper and says, through him all things were made, right? He was at creation. All things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. It's as if God said, I know they're a little bit confused. I know there's some darkness. He would go on to say, the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not understood it. But Jesus came in the midst of the darkness, and in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of who is God, and he brought light to clear up the confusion. And I say, well, how do you know that the word is Jesus? He clarifies it. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, let, let me talk about this word dwelling because it's the, it's the Greek word that means he tabernacled among us, right? He dwelt among us. And if you're an ancient Israelite, and you're reading this verse, this is what's coming into your mind. You're thinking of the tabernacle, right? Where you have the, the Jewish people encamped around this tent, and inside the tent was the presence of God. That's how God dwelt with us, inside this tabernacle, right? And when they finally got into the promised land and settled, God had them make a temple, and inside this temple building was the presence of God. That's how God dwelled among the Israelites. And now John says, he's dwelt among us. He's not confined to a place anymore, but he's come to be in our midst. He's tabernacled among us. There's this, this great moment where Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. And everyone's like, what? The temple's like the greatest thing. How dare you disrespect the temple? At another point, Jesus says, you tear down this temple, Three days later, it will rise again. And they're like, what? It took decades to build this temple. What do you mean it's going to rise in three days? What Jesus meant is I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again, and then I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus dwelled among them. He tabernacled among them. 
to clear up the confusion. See, the reason Jesus didn't come as an adult and then die the next day and then rise three days later is because he wanted to demonstrate what God was like. He wanted to make God known. John goes on and he says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Isn't that good? Isn't that powerful? That God looked at this world and said, I know you're a little bit confused, so I'm going to make myself known in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to give you access to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I was talking about this sermon with Isaac and Adam the other day, and Isaac gave me this great illustration that he saw unfold the other day, and I want to share this with you. So I have an office right over here, and because there's all kind of activity that happens at the church, people talking, people laughing, having a good time, people coming in, um, I get real distracted easily, so I need to close my door. So typically my door's closed so that I can focus. Um, And 99% of the time, if somebody wants to speak with me in my office, they knock on the door. So they'll knock, and then I'll say, oh, come on in, and they come in, and we have a conversation. But there's this one guy who never knocks. He just barges right in every single time, just barges right in, and then comes up to me and puts his little arm on my shoulder. He's like, hey, how's it going, Dad? It's my 11-year-old son, Nate, right? And I'm like, I'll be like deep in thought, and I'm like, how's it going? He's like, good. What's on your mind? Oh, nothing. Just want to see how it was going. It's good to see you, buddy. We might talk a little bit longer. He's like, all right, good seeing you. Have a good day. And then he just leaves, right? He has unlimited access. He can come in at any time. Now, to make this illustration even better, um, let's just say hypothetically that there's a, a little kid in the neighborhood that there's a rumor going on that Pastor Dave can explain the deep things of God. And so this 11-year-old in the neighborhood says, I kind of want to go talk to Pastor Dave so he can explain God to me, but I'm not so sure because, let's be honest, I'm a little bit intimidating, right? Just kidding. I'm not not intimidating for those of you who don't know me. Actually, this happened one time where my son um, took William, like grabbed him by the hand or grabbed him by the shirt and just brought him right into my office. See, William, he probably would never knock on my door or he would never come in all by himself. But my son said, let's go. We're, we're going to go see my dad and see if he can give us X, Y, Z, right? And he just brings him in and I'm like, hey, William, it's good to see you, buddy. And we're talking and then, then they just leave. Now you say, well, why did you share that silly illustration with me? Here's why. Because the father wants you to know him. And so he has sent the son and the son, it's almost like he says, come on, come on in. I want you to dwell with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and you have instant access anytime you want because God has made himself known. And that's, that's really good news. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now, I want to take this sermon just one step further. Because this is powerful. This is so awesome, right? If you're confused right now or you've been daydreaming, just come back to me right now because this is really cool. This is really cool. Everyone with me? All right. This is, um, 
This is First uh, John, right? This I actually made a mistake here. This should say John, not First John. But so the Apostle John wrote what is now called John, and he also wrote First John, Second John, Third John. These are letters that get distributed throughout the Mediterranean world. So people we have in church services like this, and they oh I got a I got a letter from John. Oh, I got another letter. We'll call this Second John. Oh John he sent us a third letter. We'll call this Third John. So John wrote these letters, and this statement right here, no one has ever seen God, it's, he's only used this phrase twice. He used it here, and he also used it, this is so good, this is so good. He also used it in 1 John 4, where he writes, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. See, this is so good. Here's what John says. He's talking to the church, right? These are the local churches. He says, look, We've never seen God. Wouldn't it be cool to see God? I mean, not like in the middle of the night or if you're trying to fall asleep and the the lights are down, but wouldn't it be really cool to see God? He says, look, we've not seen God, but here's how you can see God. Here's how you can experience the real God by loving one another. The New Living Translation translates this, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So when we love one another, we in part make God known. So here's just the one truth I want to leave you with today. And it's this, that the real God made himself known through Jesus and we make Jesus known through our love. God looked down at the earth and he said, I know they're a little bit confused. I know they're having a hard time making sense of who I am. So I'm going to send my son down in their context by putting on human skin and tabernacling among them. And you know how we make the real God known to everybody else? We love one another. Here's how the Apostle Paul wrote this Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. I love the definition of humility. It's not thinking less of myself, right? That's self-pity. Humility is thinking of myself less. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. So he says, humble yourself and, and just think of others better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And you say, okay, well, what kind of attitude did he have? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, right? He He is God in the flesh, but it's not as if he clung to it. It's not as if he tried to grasp all the benefits of being God. Jesus never played the God card. He never showed up in a room and said, "Um, I think I should get first pick because uh, I'm God. I think I should have the first row, right? Well, nobody really likes the first row here, but let me use a better example. Um, I I shouldn't have like uh, the first piece of the pie because I'm God, right? I mean, he never played the God card. He never grasped for it. He never clung to it. But instead... He gave up his divine privileges. He did not give up his divinity, but he gave up his divine privileges. 
He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. The best example of this is when Jesus was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, right? And he's like, all right, guys, I'm going to wash your feet. And, and Peter's like, you're not washing my feet? I mean, there's a slave in the corner here that we paid to wash each other's feet. What are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. In other words, when you live as part of the kingdom of God, we wash each other's feet. We do low stuff. We think of other people as better than ourselves. And he goes on. He says, when he appeared in human form, when he came down, when he tabernacled in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death, even death on a cross. He became one of the thousands of Jewish people in those days who was crucified like a slave. And he did it to demonstrate his love and forgiveness. The real God has made himself known through Jesus. And isn't it true? Come on. We make Jesus known through our love. And here's the truth. Love is not confusing. Sometimes theology can be a little bit confusing and church and Bible can be confusing, but man, when I experience love, it's not confusing. Sometimes I'm not really sure what to believe on a certain issue, but I almost always know what love requires of me in that moment. It's just, will I have the courage to actually love? So if you're a little bit confused right now, hopefully you're not, I'm going to make this a little bit more simple and a little bit more practical. I want to challenge you. Here's your homework. Okay, I want to challenge you to ask one question this week. And I'm going to challenge you to ask this question out loud to somebody in your circle of influence. One question. And just for kicks here, I'm going to say, ask the question three times since we're on the whole like Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? And here's the question. Here's the question. How can I help? Honey? How can I help? Boss, how can I help? Employee, how can I help? Coworker, how can I help? Teacher, how can I help? Kids, how can I help? Mom, dad, how can I help? When you ask that question, here's what you're doing. You're acknowledging that you have some time and some emotional energy. You have some resources that you can leverage, not on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of somebody else. And when you ask that question and when you do it, when they give you the answer and you have to be willing to do whatever it is they ask you to do, you are in part making the real God known. So will you ask that question this week? Three times. Maybe even this afternoon. Tomorrow. The next day. To the people around you. How can I help? How can I serve you? How can I make your life a little bit better, make your life a little bit easier? And when we do that, we make God known because God made himself known through the person of Jesus. And we make Jesus known through the way that we love one another. So will you do that? Will you try that this week? as we begin this whole series on discovering who God is. You know, we're going to talk about goodness next week, and then the following week we'll talk about sovereignty, and we'll talk about holiness. 
I ran into a, a couple just this morning on their way in, and I said, real quick, tell me what it was like when you grew up. What was your view of God? And they said, my view of God that he was, he was, he was going to get you. Right? And so I was always worried that God was going to get you. And my belief is that is a distorted view of who God is. So we want to try to clean up the distortion in hopes that you'll get an accurate picture of who God is. But God is love. That's who he is. That's what he does. And so the best way to get to know the real God is to love other people. And the best way for other people to see God in you is to love one another. So let's do this. As an individual, as a couple, as a parent, as a family, we're starting small groups tonight, which I'm pumped up about. Small groups this week, will you ask that question of your small group leader? How can I help? How can I help? How can I help?